Father, you are most gracious and kind in saving us and calling us your children, calling us out of our sinful state and into our right standing with you. Father, because you have done that, I know I have complete confidence, Lord, that you will continue that process of sanctification that you began on that day in our lives. Father, I pray that you would be doing that even now as we hear your word. Lord, speak to us. May your word reign supreme in our life that we would truly know your Son, Jesus Christ, as our Savior. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. John had a very specific purpose in writing his gospel. He was not, in his old age, sitting by the fire one evening, and decided that since he was the last of the apostles alive, that it would be a good legacy for him to write his own gospel. God is the one who ordained this gospel to be written, who inspired it to be written, who directed it to be written, as we are told in 2 Timothy 3.16. John was given a very specific reason to pen this gospel, and he tells us what that reason is in chapter 20, verse 31, when he says, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. John desired us to know Christ, to know Jesus as who he is, not a helpful guide for how we should live our lives, not a beggar searching and seeking anyone to believe that he can help and save them. Not another face in the crowd, someone that you could ignore or not take notice of. Jesus is God. He is the everlasting from everlasting. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. He is the great I am. In Exodus chapter 3, God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush and laid out the next chapter in the eternal redemptive plan. That plan that he had preordained before he first said, let there be light. That plan included the inclusion of this man, Moses, who was a bit more than a little timid and skeptical. So when God told him to go to Egypt, to Pharaoh, his adopted brother, and tell him to let God's people go, Moses was hesitant to fulfill that command. So he asked God, who should I tell Pharaoh and the people that sent me? To which God told him, tell them that I am who I am. That is who sent you. This is my name. And his name is the same as his nature which is why taking his name in vain is a grievous sin. His name is the essence of who, of who he is. His name is the same as holy, holy, holy. He is eternal, unchanging, self-existent, infinite. He is love. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. This is the God that was speaking with Moses. This is the God who brought the elect children of Israel out of Egypt. This is the God that created the nation and people of Israel. And this is the God that was supposed to be being worshipped by that nation at the time that Jesus came on the scene. This nation, these people, this religion all said that they worshipped God. All said that they knew God and that they were his people and they were all part of his kingdom. 
and that they were all also looking for the Messiah, the one that would make all things new, the one that God had promised to the original set of parents in the garden when he said that he would crush the head of the serpent. And into this culture, into this country, into these people, God stepped down out of eternity, out of his heavenly state, and into our realm. He condescended to live as a man, as his own creation. He did this to bring glory to his name. Glory given his name because of the majesty and love that is found within the Trinity of God. Glory given the Father for sending the Son. Glory given the Son for living a perfect, sinless life because of his love for the Father. And glory given the Spirit as he directed and began the process of Jesus becoming a man through the overshadowing of a young woman named Mary. And for this reason, Jesus did not show up as a full-grown man. He came to earth as an embryo, that thing that most evangelicals are now no willing longer to fight for or contend for, that thing that they say that is not human. This is how Jesus came to the earth. And he grew in his mother's womb. He was born just like the rest of us. He experienced life in his father's creation just like the rest of us. However, unlike the rest of us, he never said mine when he was playing as a toddler. Never told his parents no when they told him to do something. He lived a perfect life. And every day, his love for his eternal father grew, deepened, and directed his life until the point that he was a grown man. Luke 2, 52. Until the time that he finally revealed to himself that he was in fact God, alongside of his heavenly father. Until he revealed to himself the divine plan of redemption that he, that he had placed in motion before he ever said, let there be light. And then at the age of 30, he stepped out of obscurity and onto the stage that he had set, the stage that would end in his bloody, gruesome death, the stage that would bring true glory as he brought back into God's family all those that his father had given to him as a love gift. We are now halfway through the ministry of Jesus, a few months away from the day that he would be glorified. And on this day, Jesus does once again only what he could do. He magnified the Father through the revelation of who he was. Verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Eight times in the book of John, we are told of Jesus equating himself with the same God that revealed himself to Moses long ago in that burning bush. The first time is found in John chapter 6, when after feeding the 5,000, Jesus tells the crowd that were clamoring after him to not seek after the one that gives them earthly bread, but to seek after the one that can give them eternal bread. It was then that he said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 35. The difference between the revelation of the eternal I am that was given Moses is that then, at that time, he was told that I am, that I am. The eternal yes and amen. The same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Hebrews 13, 8. But Jesus came to reveal God to man, to reveal himself to us. His desire was not for us to know him as a distant God, a friend on Facebook, or a second cousin that we met once long ago. 
He desired us to know him intimately, to know him as he truly is, like Adam knew Eve. Which is why every time that Jesus reveals his eternal nature, every time he does that in the book of John, he says, I am. But then he gives us a descriptor of who he is, of who this I am is. He is the bread of life. When the children of Israel were wandering in the wilderness after the exodus, they became hungry because God desired them to. So they petitioned Moses, telling him of their need. And Moses petitioned God. And God told Moses that he would rain bread out of heaven, bread that they called manna because they didn't know what it was, Exodus 16, 15. That bread was miraculous. It sustained an entire nation for 40 years. But now, God has come in human form and tells these people, tells us that he is the bread of life. Verses 48 through 51. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate man in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, the w- that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. As startling as this revelation is, the people on that day completely missed it. They didn't believe. They did not, would not eat of the bread of life. And here now, In our verses today, we're told that Jesus once again reveals himself to them and us as the great I am, this time telling us that he is the light of the world. Verse 12 again. He says, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus said this at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles the feast that was commanded by God for the children of Israel, as a time of remembrance of how he had carried them for 40 years through the Exodus period. A feast that had been hijacked by cultural relevance and religious tradition. Traditions such as the pouring out of the water on the altar by the priest who would every day during the feast lead a great procession from the temple to the pool of Siloam dip a golden pitcher into the pool, and carrying it high above his head, he would then make his way back up to the temple, back through the court of women, and into the inner court, where he would then ceremoniously pour the water of the altar as a symbol of the Shekinah glory of God that was poured out into this, the first temple during this very feast a thousand years before. It was at that time that Jesus stood up in the midst of that crowd and loudly proclaimed, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. John 7, 37 and 38. Even there, we are meant to grasp the intimacy in which we are to know Christ. We cannot have the rivers of living water flow from our hearts by merely seeing this living water. We can't have eternal life by dipping ourselves in this water. We must come and drink of this water. Looking is not good enough. Bathing is not close enough. We must drink of this water. It must become part of us. It must be allowed to permeate every cell of our body, radically altering us and changing us to our very core. And as that water would have been being poured out by that priest, and the musicians would have been playing, come as you are, over and again, to get that crowd into the right religious state of mind. Out in the court of women, young men would be making their way up ladders of the four 75-foot-tall menorahs that stood there. 
as the water was poured out on the altar, these young men would take their torches that they carried and they would light those menorahs, symbolically done in remembrance of the pillar of fire that God provided for the children of Israel each and every night of the Exodus period. And the light coming from those menorahs was so bright and reflected off the gold facade of Herod's temple that it was said that the entire city of Jerusalem was illuminated by them. It was said that the entire city could be seen from miles around because of the reflected light of those menorahs. In our day of electricity, we're no longer amazed at bright lights to the same degree that these people were. We, city, we see cities glowing with radiance all the time. But at the same time, there is a majesty, a wonder that happens when you're driving and you come around a bend or over a rise and you see a city lit up at night. There's an amazement and a wonder about it. And you can't miss that city. You know exactly where it is. Which is the meaning behind the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 5, 14 and 16? Only there he makes a startling, startling revelation about those that have eaten of his body and have drunk of his living water. He said of those, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and gl give glory to God, your Father, who's in heaven. But on this day, these people would not eat of him. They refused to drink of him. They would not come to that light. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your witness, your testimony is not true. The Pharisees had an issue with Jesus. They didn't like him. And they didn't like his theology. They had plotted against him before, John 5, 16 and 18. And then again in John 7, 30 and 32. They had murmured about him in John 7, 11 and verses 45 and 49. They had evenly spoken openly about him among themselves, such as in John 6, 41 and 42, and then again John 7, 15. But they had never challenged him openly before. But he had never ruined their religious ceremony as he did here. He had never stood up in the midst of an altar call to a false god and proclaimed the truth of the gospel, the truth concerning himself. And now he had to be confronted. And this confrontation deals not with the claims that Jesus made, but about the validity of those claims. The Pharisees are trying to throw out the reality of what he is saying based upon a legal technicality. In chapter 5, verse 31, Jesus said, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. And there, he used the witness of John the Baptist as proof of his claim to deity. But now, the answer to the legal challenge being leveled against him is answered in a much more cryptic manner. Verse 14. He says, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. His answer to them is not what they were expecting. He once again told them the simple facts that he knew where he came from and where he's going. The very same thing that he had told them a few days ago in this very temple before he made that proclamation that all that thirst should come to him. When he had told them that even though that they knew him and even though they knew where he came from, they really didn't know him or where he came from because they didn't know the one who had sent him 
the one who is absolute truth. And because they didn't know him, they cannot come to where he is going. Dear ones, let us learn a lesson from our Savior. He never tried to make faith in him easy. He never dumbed down the gospel in order that seekers could find him. He never changed his words, changed his message to make it easier for people to accept him into their hearts. He never told them that they did know God and that they could have eternal life just by seeing the bread of life, by just acknowledging the water of life. He allowed the radical truth of God and his salvation to remain foreign, obscure, impossible for the human mind to comprehend on its own. And he had no issue with the fact that they did not, could not, would not comprehend this truth. He just told the truth, knowing that all that were his, that what the Father had given him, that the Spirit was working within, all those would come, would recognize their radical depravity, and would run to the living water, would dine at the Master's table, and would gladly eat his body and drink his blood. Let us learn this lesson from Christ. Let us never try to dumb down the gospel, to make it more appealing to the masses, Make it more relevant and easier to understand. Because if we do, if we explain the gospel in such a manner that the unregenerate can understand it, can see the value in accepting it, then we are no longer presenting the true God to them. The true Savior, the true bread of life, the true light of the world. We are offering to them a Twinkie, a flashlight, and although that flashlight may have an LED bulb and some energizer batteries in it, it will not illuminate the path to heaven. Verse 15, Jesus says, You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Wait a minute, Houston, we have a problem here. Because I seem to recall that Jesus said that he did judge people. Isn't that what he said in chapter 5, verses 22 through 27? He says, um, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Isn't this judging? Isn't this a clear contradiction to what he just said? Or is he playing word games with the Pharisees? This is where context is king. What Jesus said in verse 15 of our text is true. And what he said in chapter 5 is true. He does judge, but he does not judge according to the flesh as the Pharisees do. His judgment is right. It's not tainted by personal opinion, by feelings, or by political or social climate. His judgment is unchanging. It's external. It's fixed in heaven. It is rooted and grounded in the nature of the great I am. Which is what he says in verse 16. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Here, in this statement, we are challenged by the reality of who Jesus is. Just as I said that we cannot and should not ever dumb down the truth of the gospel to make it easier to understand, the same thing applies to the reality of the nature of God. Here, in this verse, and then again in verse 17, Jesus clearly defines the reality that he is a different person than the Father. They are two separate people. Verse 17 in your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. So how can God be one? Which we're totally told that we clearly worship a monotheistic God. Deuteronomy 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. A reality that Jesus himself taught in Mark chapter 12, verse 29. Jesus answered a man, and he said, This is the most important commandment. Hear, O Lord, or hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But then we have verse 18. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. So how can God be one and then have Jesus testify about himself and hold up his Father as a second person and both of them be God? One plus one does not equal one. I know how this math thing works. Even new math isn't this messed up. This is the issue that Arius had during the second century as he read and taught through scripture. How can God be one and the Father be that one and then Jesus claim to be God as well? His answer was to try to dumb down that equation, to make it more logical, to make it easier for the general masses to understand, to grasp, to accept into their hearts. He said that Jesus was not God, at least at not the same level as and to the same extent as the Father. This was deemed a heresy because of the clear teaching of Scripture at the Council of Nicaea and is clearly not the reality of who Jesus is. And this was the issue that these men were dealing with at that very moment. Because they understood that by taking the I am upon himself, by claiming that he was the bread of life, that Jesus was making himself equal to God. Not a lesser God, not a different of a different substance, and not to a lesser amount of the same substance. They understood that his claim was that he was God, the very one that he had told that man in the Gospel of Mark that that greatest commandment to love was him, that one. Jesus would not dumb down his eternal being just so that it was easier for people to understand. He would not take a lesser role in order that we would not be offended by the reality of God. And he would not relegate his authority to man, any portion of it, in order for us not to be offended by his clear divinity over all of us. Which is why stripping him of his sovereign authority over salvation is such blasphemy. Hear how he Jesus explained himself in John chapter 10, verses 25 through 30. He says, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Just like with his initial statement about being the light of the world, the religious leaders here determined not to address what he is actually saying in claiming to be God, but address what they think is a soft target his family. Verse 19. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? This is not the only time in that conversation that they will play the father card with Jesus. And on the surface, it can seem as if they were actually inquiring of Jesus as to what or who he's speaking of concerning his father. But as they will prove later, they're not actually asking a question so much as trying to shame Jesus into submission. There's this silly little song that's made its way into evangelicalism called Mary Did You Know? 
It asked questions concerning if she knew what things Jesus would do. If she knew that he would be her savior. If she knew that when she kissed his face, that she was kissing the face of God. It really is a silly little song. Because Mary did know, at least to the fullest extent that any human can know. She knew that she would be giving birth to the Messiah. She was told this truth in Luke 1, verses 26 through 28. And she also knew the social stigma that would ensue because of it. How much it would cost her for the rest of her life. She would always, always, for the rest of her life, be talked about behind her back. There goes that Mary. You know that her oldest son isn't Joseph's son. Word is, is that Joseph and Mary don't even talk about who the father is. But if you ask me, I think it's, this was her whole life. This is the question that the religious leaders are asking. Who's your daddy? Maybe you might want to just tone down all these grand statements that you're making. Otherwise, we may just have to bring up your family lineage. But Jesus would not be so easily buffaloed. Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. People, words have meaning. You've heard me say this before. Unfortunately, too many people are willing to gloss over the meaning of words thinking is of very little importance. The last statement made by Jesus is a great example of this. First of all, this is a statement of fact. There was no doubt in the mind of Christ that what he said was fact. He and he meant what he said. Secondly, all of us would agree that he's making a distinction between those that are his followers and these men. If his followers were those on the inside of the ark during the flood, these men were those on the outside of the ark. So, so what's the big deal? Only that what Jesus has just said to these men, who did know about his family, who did know about his travel, who did know about his actions, and they did know about his teaching, is that they do not know him or his father. Now are you getting what I'm saying? They may have been able to pick Jesus out of a crowd. They may have been able to tell you something about his family. They may have been able to tell you about his friends and maybe even his teachings. But they did not know him. And? So how many others are there that are like these men? People who act like they know Jesus. That can tell you some facts and figures about him. Who have heard some things about him. Who may have even professed him as their savior, but who do not know him or his father. You can spot these people pretty easily. They are the ones that are casual in their relationship with the Lord. They are not too interested in committing to him. They like dating him and his church on a non-committal basis. Dear ones, what is your relationship with the Lord like? Would you say that you are so in love with the Lord that you are willing to give everything up to live for him? Would you say that he and his church are the most, the most important thing in your life? That you make excuses to go to church instead of making excuses for not being here? How you know him ties back into that original statement from these verses. I am the light of the world. 
Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Does this describe your life? Is your life a life that can be best described as one that is walking in light, that you possess the light of life? An account in the book of John wouldn't be an account without him adding some kind of narrative. And we've almost made it through this account without a narrative. But then we come to verse 20. Verse 20 says, These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Just as all things given to us in the Bible, we should stop and ask ourselves, why is this here? Why do we need to know this? How is this information helpful or useful? How does it bring greater revelation of the life of Christ to me? Well, the treasury was part of the court of women, which was inside the temple enclosure itself. The temple during the days of Christ was a huge complex, huge, built with massive stone walls surrounding it. The court of Gentiles was outside of the court of Gentiles. It was designated for those that were not Jewish to come and worship God. And then there was the court of women, where Jewish women were to gather to worship the Lord. And in this court were those four menorahs that were lit during the Feast of Tabernacles. And inside this court also were 12 different collection containers, three on each wall, each designated for a different purpose. And then built into one of those walls was the treasury, which, is, which was the offices for the religious leaders and where all the money from those containers was taken and then dispersed out. John gave us this information in order that we would know that Jesus was not challenging the religious leaders by proclaiming the radical truth of the gospel in some hidden room somewhere in the city. He went straight to the center of the seat of their power and preached there. The court of women was where the water pouring ceremony happened, where the candles were lit that illuminated the temple, that that radiated light through the entire city. And there's been great debate and commentary over this single verse, verse 20. Over the commentary by John concerning the actions of Jesus. But the debate has nothing to do with what is said by him, but it all centers around when this all happened. Was this the same evening that Jesus had stood and said, If anyone thirsts, come and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of him will flow rivers of living water. It would make sense that it was the same evening. Since it was the same place that the young men had just climbed those 75-foot tall menorahs that were lighting the city, it would make sense for Jesus to proclaim then, there, that he was the light, not just the light of the city once a season, but that he was the light of the world. The debate and problem occurs because of those verses that we didn't read today that have been added into this chapter. Those ones concerning that woman caught in the act of adultery. The ones that have been proven were not part of any of the, of the earliest manuscripts. Those verses and that story successfully interrupt the flow and thought of John by being added. Did you notice how easily we transition from the account of Jesus standing up during the water pouring ceremony into this one? Did you see how, the logical how they logically flow one to the other? And can you, because we do not have to contend with that story and its timeline, now understand why this statement concerning being the light of the world was so timely? It all ties back into the stated reason that Jesus came to earth. Not to bring salvation to man, not to make your pitiful life better or easier, not to give you your best life now and to be your friend. He himself told us why he came here. He came to do the will of his Father. John 5, 19 through 22. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that they all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And even then, when he was telling these people why he came, and even what the will of the Father was, he clearly warned them of the eternal separation within humanity, the same one that he again speaks of in verse 21. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. This is the second time within the course of this discourse that Jesus tells these people the very same thing. The first time was found in verse 34 of chapter 7. Before he stood during the water pouring ceremony, as he taught in the midst of the feast or tabernacles, after he tells them that he would not come on his own accord, but that he had been sent by the one that they do not know, it was then that he first tells them that they will seek him, but they will not find him. And where he is going, they cannot come. But in this verse, he clarifies the separation between him and them. And in this clarification is the substance and meaning behind his proclamation concerning him being the light of the world. He tells them that he's going to some place that is missing two things that they now possess, that they now have. Where he is going, there's no death. And there's no sin. When we first began our journey through the book of John, I told you that the first 18 verses of chapter 1 is the entire summation of the book of John. Everything else in the book of John, everything else that's contained in it, just builds upon it, magnifies those verses. Verse 4, John says, John 1 says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. If you are wondering what Jesus meant when he said that he is the light of the world, this is an explanation of that. He's talking about life, real life, not this, this thing that we call life. It's something different something that is contrasted with this not life. Which is why he says that whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He is not concerned about us being able to see our way through this life. He didn't come to give us 20-20 vision on how to navigate this life. He came to give us life, and he is the light of the world. But his primary reason for coming was for the Father, to glorify him, to make him known that in order that we can know God, really know God, which is why the introduction to the book of John, the synopsis ends with verses 14 through 18. The word became flesh, that dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he who I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Here is the importance of those I am statements given by Jesus. 
when, God, when Moses asked God, who shall I tell them sent me? He was given the name of God, the essence of God, the reality of God. I am that I am. Jesus came to flesh that reality out for us, which is why he came as a man, which is why every time that he makes an I am statement, he follows it up with a descriptor of who this I am is. I am the bread of life. It is I who give you nourishment here, now. But more importantly, I can and will give you true nourishment, not for your dead, decaying bodies, but for your eternal soul. I am the light of the world. Folks, we live in a dark, lost world, in case you didn't know. A world full of people who are like ants, busily going around what they think is life, thinking that they have a clear vision for their lives, but all the while knowing that they can't see into the future. That is complete darkness for them. And what is the future? What is that defined as? The future is the second after this one. Not some distant thing far out there. We have no clue what is the next, this next instant holds for us. And yet every one of us think that we're going to get up out of these chairs. We're going to leave this place and we're going to go home. We're going to have lunch and we're going to do whatever we desire afterwards. And then we're going to wake up tomorrow and then go about our busy lives once again. The reality is, this is all future. This is all darkness to us. This is all out of the control of our hands. And none of us can see what is coming in the next second. Humanity walks in darkness. Not just the darkness of our sin that sin that separates us from Christ, the sin that we will all die in and die because of, the sin that we can't shake or even deny. But the darkness of the future, who can know the future? We can. We can accurately predict the future. If we are in the light, if we are of the light, if the light is our life, if he, the great I am, is the I am of our life, then we can walk in the light of his life. We will not and cannot know what will happen in this next second, but we can be confident in the one who holds the next second in the palm of his hands. We can live confidently that we can accurately say that one day we will see Jesus. And on that great getting up day, we will be like him. That we will be with him if he's the light of our life. If he is the bread of our life. Jesus came to do the will of his Father. And that will is that we know him and his Son. Not know about him. Not be acquainted with things about him, around him. Not familiar with what he's like, but that we should know him. Know him like a nursing mother knows her child. Like a husband knows his wife. Like our body knows the food that we eat. He came that we would know him. And in knowing him, that we would have life, true life, and life more abundantly. Saints. How do you know Christ? Is this how you know Christ? Is he your light, your food, 
Or do you just know him in the same manner as the religious leaders did? Who could tell you all about him, but who weren't in the light? Could not go where he was going and would die in their sins. I implore you, know Christ. Know him deeply, intimately. Ensure that he is your bread, your light. Don't settle for anything less than that. His desire is for those that are his to know him in this manner. To know them as his light, their food, their drink, their God. To marvel at the majesty that is Christ. That the Son of God, the one who said, let there be light that created us, man, out of dust, that holds the whole universe in the, sp in the span of his palms, who holds our future in his hands as well. This Christ came to live as one of us in order that we can know the great I am, to truly know him. Ask him. Ask him. And he will give you the desire to know him in this manner. This is the promise of Luke eleven thirteen. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is the promise of Matthew 7, 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. It's the promise given to all those that are his in John 14, 18 through 20. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I, I am in my Father, and you in me. And I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Saints, know Christ, the great I am. This is his desire for you. And for me. In this, we will bring glory to the triune God by knowing him. He came in order that you would know the great I am intimately. Everything else is walking in darkness.